Section 18 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Evidence Furnished by Science of Likenesses, Part 2. Thus, the correctness of the theory that the skull is formed of modified vertebrae in reality depends on the special standpoint from which we regard the name vertebra. Viewed as to its development and compared with the development of vertebrae, the segments which every anatomist recognizes in the skull assuredly present no resemblance to the joints of the backbone. But if we enlarge the definition of a vertebra to include the idea of a segment of the skeleton forming the axis of the body and protecting the nervous and blood centers, then the segments of the skull may correspond to such description. Here, however, we construct a definition of the vertebra without reference to its development the latter source of information being the most trustworthy in reference to the nature of the things and belongings of life. As Huxley has remarked concerning skull and spine, quote, though they are identical in general plan of construction, the two begin to diverge as soon as the one puts on the special character of a skull, and the other that of a vertebral column. The skull is no more a modified vertebral column than the vertebral column is a modified skull, unquote. This view exactly accords with the requirements of the theory of evolution, which would impress that, in the course of descent from the primitive spinal and skullless stage of organization, the skull has been specialized from the general vertebrate type, just as the vertebrae themselves have risen from their first root outlines to their present and modified condition. Thus have grown the ideas which the casual study of a broken sheep skull first generated and thus do we find an illustration of the method in which a study of homology leads us towards an understanding of the true nature of an organ or part in living beings. But for this science of likeness, but for the results of long, careful, and laborious research into the comparisons which might be legitimately drawn between the formation of the skull in one animal and in another, the answer to the question, what is a skull, might have been left in the position of a riddle propounded by the sphinx itself. Thus much has resulted from the study of likenesses, namely, a clear gain of much knowledge concerning the true nature of an intricate portion of the animal frame. It yet remains to be shown how the progress of evolution has helped and aided the true understanding of the modifications which the skull has undergone in its progress from the unspecialized type of primitive vertebrate life, and conversely, how the existence of such modifications aids, confirms, and supports the basis on which the development theory may be said to rest. Says Professor Parker, quote, We are necessarily led to see that this unity of structure, this relationship, includes extinct creatures as well as those now living, and the student cannot but seek for some further light than is involved in the establishment of the fact that there is a unity in the structure of all vertebrate skeletons. An explanation is required. We want to comprehend how this unity and diversity has come about. Morphology, the science of structure, studied in the history of embryos, reveals to us an evolution by which the skull passes through one grade of structure after another, becoming advanced and changed by almost imperceptible gradations until the adult type is attained in a certain number of days and weeks. This evolution is continually going on within our experience, and we little think of its marvels and yet many find it inconceivable that the same process of evolution can have taken place in past ages, so as to produce from small beginnings the varied fauna of the globe. 
the natural forces which in a few days concludes mr parker make a chick out of a little protoplasm and a few teaspoonfuls of yolk are pronounced incompetent to give rise to a slowly changing gradually developing series of creatures under changed conditions of life yet to our minds the one is as great a marvel as the other in fact both are but the different phases of one history of organic creation unquote. the old idea of the archetype is thus seen to become resolved into and to be replaced in time and through the progress of scientific research by the primitive form from which all the varied structures of the same kind have arisen by a natural process of evolution the science of likeness and the theory of development mutually support and confirm each other no longer do we search for an archetype skull or for a typical vertebra the creative idea in this or in any other department of natural science is not contained in some perfectly formed structure with all its complexities and intricacies of form already apparent the true object of our search is for the primitive type and the way of our seeking lies through the modifications and paths by which from that simple type the abstruse and the complex have been evolved the present is perhaps the most appropriate stage of our inquiries at which to point out that whilst the broad features of likeness in a series of animals or plants such as those exemplified by the limbs of higher animals are only susceptible of explanation on the theory of evolution or in other words of inheritance from a common ancestor there are other features which demand a somewhat different method of treatment when the subject of homologies is regarded in a broader aspect we become aware that it is not only possible but necessary to regard likenesses from two points of view the broad homologies of limbs are to be explained as just remarked by the theory of descent from a common ancestor such structures the direct product of blood relationship are to be called homogeneous and illustrate the purest examples of the likenesses we are discussing but it has been already remarked that a law of adaptation forms along with descent a factor of no slight importance in modifying the structures of living beings every living thing is subject to the perpetual and continuous action of its environments or surroundings such outward influences may favor or retard the evolution and growth of new parts and organs and will unquestionably induce now as in the past alterations in the structure and form of the living being of the exact influence and extent of the external causes of variation we know very little but of the existence of such causes no one entertains a doubt the question however presents itself as to the nature of the likenesses and differences which such outside influences may produce all likenesses or homologies which cannot be accounted for on the theory of descent from a common ancestor are named homoplastic according to mr ray lancaster's terminology as an example of both kinds of likeness it may suffice to cite the limbs and heart of higher vertebrata and the swimming bladder of fishes as illustrative of homogeneous parts or those which are the products of inheritance the heart of a bird and a quadruped are homogeneous organs but the cavities or compartments are homoplastic or in other words have been developed independently of each other as in all probability have the feathers of the one and the hairs of the other it is well therefore to take into account this false or incomplete likeness which expresses no blood relationship and which in its production involves much that is obscure we can explain the likeness between limbs on the theory of descent from a common type 
the likeness between a worm and a lobster in respect of their jointed bodies becomes clear on this theory but we cannot so account for the close likeness between the individual joints of a worm or between those of a lobster or for that between the feelers jaws and feet of the latter animal on the principle of inheritance mr darwin says the formation of such structures may be attributed in part to distinct organisms or to distinct parts of the same organism having varied in an analogous manner and in part to similar modifications having been preserved for the same general purpose or function leaving as still under the shadow of unapprehended causes the variation of parts from outward forces operating upon the living being and its structure let us turn to some clear examples of plain though at first sight unapparent likenesses which may be drawn from both animal and plant kingdoms our examples may comprise a wide range of subjects but this facility of illustration is in itself a proof of the universal application of the science of likeness to explain the modifications of common types through which the forms of life have come to exhibit that diversity which is at once the wonder and the charm of living nature no better starting point can well be found than within the region of flowers and fruits whereof many familiar objects may be shown to teem with the lessons of highest philosophy once again goethe's name comes to the front as the chief originator and expounder of those likenesses between very diverse organs the true import of which relationship the great poet philosopher himself did not fully comprehend in his work versuch die metamorphosen de flensen zu erklaren bearing date seventeen ninety goethe following hard upon caspar friedrich wolff enunciated his thoughts concerning the metamorphoses of plants it is necessary first of all to clearly understand the significance of this phrase metamorphosis and its applications to the study of likenesses with goethe the phrase implied what we now term abnormal development it meant the chronicle of the changes which might take place in the usual plan or type in which a plant was built up the production of a double flower was to goethe as it is to us to-day an example of metamorphosis of the alteration of parts from their normal type what may be said however to be the bearing of these discoveries on the elucidations of the problems of animal and plant forms and existence the reply is clear to us to-day although to the believer in freaks of nature the question would have been impossible of solution to the latter a monstrous development or a departure from the ordinary type of things was an evidence that nature was given occasionally to play strange pranks without reason or meaning the very phrase sports of nature applied to the monstrosities or abnormalities thus produced indicates with sufficient clearness the opinion respecting the frivolity of madre natura which the old naturalists entertained a double flower and a two-headed nightingale were equally good illustrations of the freaks in which nature was wont to indulge the idea that possibly the production of a monstrosity in animals and plants was as directly due to the operation of law as the birth of natural progeny was never entertained until the genius of goethe and his successors pointed out that in the so-called abnormalities of life we might find a clue to the primitive forms of living things in the production of her freaks nature was showing her hand so to speak and lifting a corner of the veil in which her ways of development were so thickly enshrouded the transformations and metamorphoses of animals and plants viewed in this light 
are but the occasional return of nature to primitive ways and methods of working on the idea that living things have not always existed as they now appear we behold in deviations from the normal type a clue to the stages and states of long ago on the theory that creation has been from the first a stable and unaltering collection of living forms the metamorphoses and variations of animals and plants are simply grounds for the exhibition of wonderment and vain surprise amongst the most important of the generalizations which goethe deduced from his study of the variations of plant structure and life was that which held that the leaf is the type of the whole plant not merely can it be shown that every appendage of the stem is a leaf of one kind or another but it may also be proved that the plant itself arises from a seed which is in its essential nature merely a peculiarly modified bud strange indeed is it to think that between the gorgeous beauty of the blossom or the complex nature of the flower and its parts and the simple leaf there should exist such close and intimate connection but the likenesses or homologies which underlie the varied forms of plants may be readily illustrated by a brief reference to familiar facts of flower structure flower buds spring from the protective base of leaves called bracts now these leaves exhibit every transition and gradation from the ordinary leaf of the plant to the more characteristic leaf we see protecting the flower bud next in order the botanist asks us to note that bracts themselves may insensibly pass by easy ways and gradual stages to correspond with the outer parts of the flower there are four parts in a perfect flower arranged as circles or whorls of leaves placed in an alternating fashion as to the individual leaves one whorl within the other beginning at the outside of the flower we find the calyx composed as a rule of green leaves called sepals next comes the brightly colored part without which in popular acceptation a flower would not merit the name the corolla composed of leaves called petals which alternate within the sepals these two outer whorls are the floral envelopes within the corolla we find the stamens each consisting of a stalk and a head in which latter is developed the yellow dust called pollen by which the ovules are fertilized and converted into their fertile seeds last of all and in the center of the flower the pistil is to be noted this part consists of one or more carpels in each of which we note a lower part called the ovary wherein the ovules which become the seeds after fertilization with the pollen are contained thus much by way of a brief lesson in elementary botany now when we study the bracts we find that insensibly these have a tendency in many flowers to become like the green sepals of the calyx look at the camellia in bud you will see the numerous bracts and also the five sepals and you will further gain a good idea from this familiar example of the absolute identity which may exist between bracts and sepals in the hundred-leaved rose you will find illustrated in an equally plain and perfect manner the likeness of sepals to the green leaves of the rose plants and in the geranium the same phenomenon is occasionally seen from the green calyx with its sepals to the colored corolla with its petals the transition is just as readily made in camellia japonica we behold such an interesting and gradual transition from sepals to petals in some plants for example indian cress and fuchsia the calyx instead of being green may be colored this fact indicating a transition from calyx to corolla in one way on the other side 
we find the petals may be developed as ordinary leaves, and thus we learn that petals, like sepals, are simply modified leaves. The case for the apparent substantiation of Goethe's maxim grows stronger when we approach stamens and pistil. If the stamen be in reality a leaf, it is also certain that it resembles a leaf much less closely than the sepal or the petal. The stamen is a stalked organ, as we have seen, and bears in its head or anther the yellow pollen. This head seems to represent the folded blade of the staminal leaf, but have we any proof that our conjecture is probable or correct? Let the facts of botany reply. Here is a petunia, for instance, in which the stamens are replaced by stalked leaves, and here is a leaf degrading to become a mere scale. There a white water lily and a double rose, in both of which cases we may observe the transition stage whereby the stamen becomes a petal, whilst the petal in the rose may become in its turn a sepal. So too in the common tulip, the three parts of the pistil and the six stamens may all be transformed into petals. Nor does the central organ of all, the seed-producing pistil, escape these metamorphic changes. The double-flowering cherry shows its carpel in the shape of a green leaf. The willow flowers show us gradations from the leaf-like carpel to the altered stamen, and thence to the ordinary leaf. And we may, lastly, find in some plants, as in the monstrous specimens of Dutch clover, that every part of the flower becomes a leaf. Goethe's own words regarding the pistil succinctly express the true state of matters regarding its abnormal history. Quote, if we keep in view the observations which have now been made, we shall not fail to recognize the leaf in all seed vessels, notwithstanding their manifold forms, their variable structure, and different combinations. Unquote. Thus Goethe's generalization finds its best proof in the facts of vegetable monstrosities, and the science of likenesses, tracing nature in our bypaths of development, discovers that, whatever may be said of the first beginnings of plant life on the globe, the latter development which has given us the flowering plants has apparently been directed wholly or in greater part towards the elaboration of the leaf. To the evolution of the leaf, as the science of likeness proves, we owe the wondrous beauty of the flowers which, like the stars of the poet, brighten earth's otherwise dull firmament. It is both interesting and important to note that some botanists hold the view that the original organs of the flower consisted simply of stamens and pistil, these organs being alone necessary for the production of seeds. The petals are to be viewed as flags, serving to attract insects for fertilization, as will hereafter be explained. The petals are thus regarded as modified stamens, and yellow is considered to be the original color of flowers. Unquestionably, the most simple and least modified flowers are yellow, and we know that stamens are extremely apt to develop into petals or at least into leaf-like structures. But such considerations do not affect the general axiom of Goethe that the leaf is the type of the whole plant. For before stamens and pistils were developed at all, there must have existed leaf-like organs adapted for nourishment, and as we see in lower plants, exercising reproductive functions as well. Stamens and petals, in other words, are secondary developments. The leaf remains, as before, the type of the whole plant kingdom. End of section 18. Chapter 7. The Evidence Furnished by Science of Likenesses, Part 2.